It's week three of our Revival Sermon Series, and we're studying the life of John Wesley, the father of Methodism, to learn what led to his personal revival and the powerful revival in the Church of England that became known as the Methodist Movement, and it eventually swept through the British Isles and across the ocean into the new colonies. It's the revival that eventually manifested into the Methodist Church that we know and love today and that is present worldwide. The hope is that we can apply some of what Wesley and the Methodist movement did at first and experience this same revival in our faith, in our church, and even out in our community. And I don't know about you, but these days, I know I could use some revival. When we left Wesley last week, he was wrestling with the disparity that he felt between his head and his heart that left him feeling inauthentic, like a half-Christian. You remember he was a philosophy professor and a master's student at Oxford who had just been ordained as a priest in the Church of England, and he had a problem. Intellectually, he felt very well prepared to be a priest. But as he began to preach conversion and salvation, he realized that his own heart felt dull. He had no passion for God. He didn't feel holy. And he realized he had yet to experience God's assurance for himself, the assurance that he was wholly accepted and loved by God. This disparity inspired in him a longing for and a pursuit of holiness that began innocently enough with reading works by the church fathers and mothers and taking on spiritual practices like prayer and fasting, increasingly frequent communion, serving the poor, visiting prisoners. But by the age of 35 years old, he was worn out. He was completely discouraged. His innocent and sincere pursuit of holiness had evolved into an obsession that left him feeling completely defeated and frustrated, wondering if he would ever earn God's grace, if he'd ever be good enough. I can relate to that. Wesley had done every single thing he could think of to be an altogether Christian. That's how he referred to a true Christian as opposed to an almost Christian, which he considered himself to be and which he preached about. In fact, almost Christian is one of his most famous sermons. In his pursuit of holiness, he even went to Georgia in the new colonies to evangelize the Native Americans which was not the result of him responding to some deep and persistent call to become a missionary. Wesley's obsessive works theology had progressed from, I have to earn God's acceptance to, I have to suffer for God's acceptance. Wesley hated boats. He was terrified of sailing. He suffered from severe seasickness and the trip across the Atlantic took three and a half months. Maybe, he thought, if I knowingly and willingly choose to suffer my worst nightmare for God, I'll be accepted. Well, it was miserable. The seas were choppy. Storms plagued them. One storm was so severe that a mast was torn right off the ship. It was terrifying. Most everyone on board, including Wesley, were sure they were going to die, except for a group called the Moravians. The Moravians were the very first Protestants. Their movement predated the German Reforma Reformation by more than a hundred years. 
In the early 1400s, their founder rejected all Roman Catholic practices that in any way implied that humans could save themselves and emphasized instead salvation by grace through faith alone. They were so grounded in grace and their faith was so deep that while everyone else on board panicked and despaired, they sang hymns to praise God. Wesley was stunned by their faithfulness and especially by their peace in the face of what everyone else thought was imminent and certain death. There was something very definitely wrong with my faith, Wesley despaired. Why don't I have their faith? Well, they didn't die. And in Georgia, Wesley began to preach and to form classes for study and accountability like he had formed at Oxford. Unfortunately, the grace the Moravians were so certain of continued to elude Wesley, and he preached and taught the laborious works righteousness he'd always relied on. He insisted that his parishioners take on the same rigorous spiritual practices he had, and he held a very early morning prayer service and required attendance every day of the week in order to earn a place at Christ's table on Sunday. If you missed a day, he refused to serve you communion, which as it turns out is not the way to grow a church. As you can imagine, parishioners were dropping like flies. And Adam Hamilton notes, they so loathed Wesley that one of them said to his face, there is not one thing that you do that I like. That is not the email I want to receive. Meanwhile, he met and began to mentor the very young Sophie Hopke, with whom he developed a mutual affection. Well, both Sophie and her uncle, who was her guardian, became quite hopeful and began to hint around at marriage between she and Wesley. But Wesley had planned to live a single and celibate life, just like the Apostle Paul, again, thinking maybe his willingness to suffer this sacrifice would please God. Well, Sophie, in her devotion to Wesley, promised John that she too would live a single and celibate life. Did I mention that Sophie was quite young? Well, she did end up getting married. And when she did, Wesley accused her of deceit and refused to serve her communion until she repented of her sin publicly. Well, Sophie, being young, was also very spirited. So on Sunday morning, she marched defiantly up to the table of our Lord and Savior. And right there before God and everybody, John Wesley, our faithful and highly esteemed founder, called her a deceitful liar and withheld the sacrament, humiliating her before the entire congregation, which her new husband did not appreciate. So he brought charges against Wesley for public and groundless defamation of character, and the civil court decided that they would prosecute. Coincidentally, it was just after this, while he awaited trial, that it came to Wesley after prayerful discernment. You know, I do believe that God is calling me back to England, and in his finest moment to date, fled in the middle of the night. Y'all, we have all had our spiritual high points, right? 
those times in our lives when we just felt elated, we felt on fire for God, filled with the Holy Spirit, full of life and love and joy. Well, this was not that for John Wesley. Think about your own spiritual low points. You know those times when you felt completely unfit to grace the bottom of much less be scraped from the sole of God's muddiest and muckiest riding boots? That's where John Wesley was right about then. He felt like a complete failure. Sailing back to England in late 1737, early 1738, he wrote this in his journal. I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, but in a storm, I think, what if the gospel be not true? I left my native country to teach the Georgian Indians. But what have I learned myself in the meantime? Why, what I the least of all suspected, that I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. All of his intense striving for holiness had finally come to a head. Then just after his return to England, at his lowest point ever, Wesley met a young Moravian evangelist named Peter Bowler. Over time, Bowler noticed Wesley's tendency to intellectualize rather than internalize his pursuit of holiness and his understanding of grace. And he became convinced that Wesley didn't have any faith at all. I have faith, Wesley insisted, just not quite enough. No, you have no faith at all, Bowler insisted. Shortly after I graduated from seminary and was appointed to my first church, I was invited back to Austin Presbyterian Seminary for a breakfast for Austin pastors. One of the administrative staff there greeted me, and when I got there, she asked me, so how's it going? What's it like being a pastor in a local church? Without missing a beat, I said, I feel like a fraud, and I did. It was all I could do to choke back the tears in that moment. It wasn't the first time that I'd felt that way. I've struggled with the sense that I somehow just couldn't quite get it, that I was beyond God's grace for as long as I can remember. But now that I was a pastor, appointed as a spiritual leader in the church, the stakes seemed so much higher. I mean, how could I, with any integrity at all, inspire faith in the hearts of others if I was faking mine. Bowler's words to Wesley, when Wesley questioned whether he should be preaching faith when he had none, encouraged me. His words still encourage me to this day when I'm in a bad place. Bowler said to Wesley, preach faith till you have it. And then because you have it, you will preach faith. I can so relate to John Wesley's fear that he wasn't holy enough to be a priest and his obsessive pursuit of holiness. Well, finally, Wesley let go. He completely let go of the idea that anything he could do might save him. And he began to pray constantly that God would give him the assurance of grace that he longed for. On May 24th, 
1738, his prayers were answered. He woke up that morning and he was reading scripture and he found in it a promise of something that he'd yet to experience fully. And then that afternoon, he was worshiping at St. Paul's three Cathedral, and again, he heard in the reading of Scripture God's promise of what God might offer him. And then that evening, he went to a prayer meeting. He writes about it in his journal. This is what he says. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and that assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley was fundamentally changed by that experience. His heart was strangely warmed. That sounds like an experience of revival to me. Y'all, it's a challenge for many of us to trust God's unconditional, unearned love and acceptance. So we all work so hard to feel deserving, to feel worthy. And when we fail, when we fall short, we get discouraged. Luther points out that when we try to follow the law with the idea that it's necessary for our salvation, and because we are human and we will fail, fail and we fail again and again, we either feel shame and failure or we get mad at God. Romans 8.28 says, we know that God works all things together for good for the ones who love God. Once we let go, once we become humble and open and trust that God loves us deeply, God will work in us. God can and will transform us, our failures and our disappointments, all of it, into a faithful and fruitful life. But we have to give up. We have to put ourselves fully in God's hands. Trust God's love for you. This letting go, this deep trust, this reliance in God alone, it can spark revival in our souls and in our hearts. And then in our actions, our works become a faithful and joyous response to the freedom and joy and hope that we experience in the love of God in Jesus Christ. May all of our hearts be strangely warmed. Thanks be to God. Amen.